ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Good day, good evening, and good screaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. And now, part two, the sequel, which is basically the sequel of the prequel to world domination and riding around in a bus like a Mongol horde as Gogol Bordello. And here we go again. Here is Eugene Hutz. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah, so I guess I'm snipping out a little bit, but somehow from those early days and uh, kind of following VV around, like kind of like I did Colorado's first punk band called The Ravers, who eventually moved to New York and changed their name to The Nails and had that radio hit 88 Lines, about 44 women, among other things. But um, somehow you left Kiev mm-hmm. and wound up eventually in New York. Yeah. Or did you form Gogol Bordello? in Europe. No, it's a very New York creation. And in fact, it was already um, my third band in in the States. Ah, Um, What were the first first two? So um, it's very very logical that (laughs) I I, uh, arrived in uh, 1990 right when New York hardcore was just absolutely, um, especially just kind of going through a so it was very vital. I mean, there was just, you know, there was bands like Shelter and, uh, you know, uh, Biohazard and, and Madball and and uh, Murphy's Law. And so that was the kind of, and I saw Fugazi pretty much right away as soon as I appeared in, on the East Coast. So, you know, all of that was like... Did you see the False Prophets? What's that? Did you see the False Prophets? No. I did not see Fall Oh, wow. But, you know... Yeah, you would have dug them. You know, all that music was coming as an avalanche. And, uh, I mean, I thought that I was kind of very polyglottic about music, which I was. Like, I was... I thought that I kind of more or less got a pretty good picture of it. And by the time I got to the States, like, you know, I, I knew about, you know, Birthday Party. And that was, like, my favorite band at the time, Sonic Youth. And, you know, who also played in Kiev once and were, I caught them there when I was uh, 16 already. Right before I left, I saw Sonic Youth. Though. So that was like a big influence, you know. And, uh, but you know, yeah, I was well aware, like the Gang of Four and all the kind of like, kind of like a funky, more post-punk things. I was really in, right. into all of that already. But when I saw hardcore shows and how, how charismatic the people are, in that scene, you know, it, it kind of blew my mind and I kind of forgot all about, you know, David Bowie and all that kind of thing. Like it just became irrelevant to me, like, you know, because like to a certain extent, all those things went hand to hand, like, you know, David Bowie and uh, Joy Division and Devo and kind of, you know, you kind of, 
Sex Pistols and The Clash, you can kind of hear it all together in a certain, you know, in a certain polyglottic mood. But when I saw, when I started going to hardcore shows in, in this uh, teen center in Vermont, where I was originally brought, you know, I was 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, 20. I basically grew up, well, attempted to grow up again there for the second time. Came of Yeah. And it kind of blew my mind because... I've never heard about them about any of these bands. Like somehow, neither Gorilla Biscuits or Fugazi. Like there, we did not get those tapes. We did not get like that music didn't go all the way to Eastern Europe. And when I started experiencing like, the live, the live, the live ritual of it, just completely, I was like, okay, this is it. Like this is how you do it. How did you wind up in Vermont? Well, that was uh, more of a doing of you know refugee resettlement program oh yeah i mean we've, we came to new york but they booted us out of here quickly because i think it was just so packed with immigrants here that they couldn't like our sponsor basically uh health and immigration was in vermont and uh that's how so your whole family came over at once you know just my, me and uh you know my mother my father and me basically uh-huh. yeah uh, most of our older brothers and sisters and you know all my cousins are back there you know Uh but you see like that was a very kind of distinctly new (laughs) era and uh and i I, it was you know i mean i was pretty uh let's not get it twisted immigration is super traumatic it's you know you're depressed and and and, uh, trying to reattune and you know a lot of things that you like about life are just gone you know like you know your friends and your girlfriend and like all of that, you just gets left behind and you start on a clean slate without knowing the language. So to the credit, and I credit this to particularly to punk culture once again, because to, to the credit of punk culture, you know, you can go from punk scene in Ukraine to punk scene on East Coast in America and make uh, and join the community pretty pretty much seamlessly. And So were your first two bands hardcore bands? Yes, Epitaph was... Epitaph, our first band that I joined because these guys already basically were a band. Uh, yes, it was a we had a seven inch and a, and a tape out. Uh, I still have several of them. It was very much a kind of more thrash crossover band, kind of along the lines. I'm sorry, of like, I didn't I didn't catch the name. The sound got garbled. Epitaph. Oh, Epitaph, like Epitaph Records. Yeah, like okay. Epitaph Records, just the band Epitaph, and we um, it was pretty much kind of a leeway, leeway, maybe a little bit of Biohazard, little bit of um, Fugazi sounding band. We were trying to find a voice out of all those elements, you know. And um, I loved it, you know. It was it was exactly the sound of of the moment um you know it was just like things were just blowing my mind like every week you know what i mean like here i saw fugazi then like next week i saw shelter and you know it was like wow like what's that like Hare krishna hardcore now like that's what's up all right let's check it out you know you feel me i mean that's so mind-blowingly progressive like Hare Krishna hardcore and not just a, a gimmick like we, we have like a lifestyle and the dudes who are just like ray kappa that's full-on on a mission and you know all the books and the you know table with uh, t-shirts and uh, and records and Hare Krishna literature you know uh-huh. and I, I appreciate I, I did not became a Hare Krishna practitioner but I appreciate the stance you know I appreciate that these people were serious and they there was a lot of vitality about it you know is Capo still a Hare Krishna or did he move on to another phase um I'm not sure if he's uh, so devoted devoted to the particularly Hare Krishna, but I know that he's devoted to the path. In fact, uh, a friend of mine 
well, Walter Schreffels from uh, Gorilla Biscuits and Quicksand and, and Youth of Today. I know they're going all to India at the end of this month to pursue the practice, you know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And what was your second band? Yet another one after that. Yes, the second band was already a band that I decided to form because I kind of wanted to make a mix of punk, which I loved, like, you know, Stiff Little Fingers kind of punk, and uh, and hardcore. So that band called The Fags. And uh, we went on, originally called that, then we called changed the name to The Cossacks in a late incarnation. And... Uh, the which? The Cossacks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... That was a, you know, I, I formed it with a guy, with Dana Shepard, who you met on San Francisco show. That was a drummer. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Very tall guy with tattoos. And um, yeah, Dana was, I really hit it off with him in Vermont because he was also an immigrant. He was from Newfoundland. And yeah, he just lost his sound. He was from where? Newfoundland. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a hard land, you know, to come from. And um, he, you know, he was coming from a family with a lot of brothers uh, six brothers who were all into punk and metal and hardcore. Like all, he was the youngest one. All his brothers were just like sheer terror, you know, motorhead, you know, DOA, DRI. Like that was the family, you know? And, uh, it was just kind of like inspiring that, you know, kind of fell into a pocket with like a dynasty of, uh, punk rockers. And, uh, we created a band and pretty much raised hell for, for next four years that we were there yeah so did you release any vinyl or cds or cassettes or anything too yeah we had a we had a one cd second one never came out uh, but we did start making you know uh some impact with we, we played in cbgb's we came out to play and uh we started getting invited to play in new york city and uh coney island high was a great place you know that we played two shows there in fact first time we drove to play uh Coney Island High, you know, it's like, wow, legendary place, you know, all we know about it is that, you know, like, Mad Ball is playing there all the time, and, you know, it's just a, it's like a mecca of punk and hardcore, so we drove there, I think it was like 94 or maybe 95, started unloading, and our bass player, Jason, goes, man, that's Joey Ramone and Tim Armstrong standing right there, so <laughs> I was like, wow, what the fuck, like, our first, our first gig in the city, and like two central guys are right here to check us out. I was like, okay, it's too good to be true. So anyway, we start loading, sitting up. Then of course it then turns out that the, the queers were playing downstairs in the bigger room, and Joey and Tim came to see them. So they all, as soon as the queers start playing downstairs, they everybody disappeared from our floor and went to see another band. We played for like five people but oh boy. <laughs> you called yourself the cossacks was any of uh, i don't want to say cossack music necessarily but was any of uh the some of some of the some of the blending of the the cultural and ethnic music and punk that vv did was that starting to creep in with the cossacks or not absolutely oh yes absolutely in fact a lot and uh we had accordion in a lot in the cossacks and uh in fact it was very proto gogol bordello it was very huh. prototype of gogol bordello in a lot of ways um just a lot a lot it had still had a bit of metallic edge because i played electric right. and you know it was just all over the place from like you know all my influences and uh and it had a lot of crunch in it but um i took in fact some of the songs from that from the from the cossacks into gogo bordello i mean 
they were in the first and even elements of them kept resurfacing for like first several albums you know and 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 is it is it the first album of Gogol Bordello that's titled Gypsy Punk? No, that's already our third album. Actually, it's fourth album. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you did some before you were ever on Side One Dummy at all, then, that people like me have never seen. Yes, that was basically when when Side One Dummy record uh, when Side One Dummy would join forces with them, which you know. Endless respect. They were always awesome. That just was like a great, uh, great era and great run. You know, I felt like we're really joining forces with a kind of um, good punk familia that kind of knows how to get shit done too. You know, right, right. But that was already our third album. Uh, well, two and a half, two albums and one EP. We already all that. Uh-huh. We had already. Since 1999, we were releasing records. They were just on, on a much smaller label, what called a uh, Rubric Records. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was like a very New York. I don't think I ever saw those. You identify Gypsy yourself, don't you? Well, my mother, yeah. We have uh, in our family, we have Romani blood for sure. I mean, without right. it, I would never even explore. Uh, you know, I would be disconnected from the topic. I would have no... Yeah. I would have no uh, in with the culture. It's very, uh, it's very uh, onto itself. That music is part of what crept into Gogol Bordello too, didn't it? You know, things coincided that, um, you know, I knew Gypsy music. It was kind of like my parallel train, parallel to go to thing, because it's Uh just so kind of, you know, mind bending and swashbuckling, you know. Festive. Yeah. And especially like Eastern, especially like Carpathian and, Romanian, Romanian gypsy music in particular, which is, you know, shared the Carpathian Ukrainian West Side, and that that's, shares a lot of same energies. Talking about yeah. mystical one more time. That is mind blowing. So, as a DJ, when I started bringing that up in my sets, you know, when I started DJing in, in, in New York City, you know, trying to make ends meet and, or just for kicks, um, I kind of start putting in. Like Taraf de Hajduks and you know Fanfare Chokarlia, these Romanian gypsy bands that were my favorite at the time, and some Django Reinhardt and other uh, more uh, sped up, more uh, rowdy sounding gypsy manush guitar players. You know, uh, I was into that kind of like it wasn't something that I I could, it wasn't something that I could ever possibly play because it requires virtuosity. You know, you know, I was just always like kind of pretty, uh, you know punky in my technique. So I loved it as a kind of parallel passion. But in New York, I was, I kind of got obsessed with that idea that maybe I can actually meet players that are virtuoso and kind of put them in a punk rock, hardcore context. And maybe some things can be done here that were not explored. And that was became kind of the vision, you know? Right. And so that's why people, you know, Sergey, our violin player, and, and Yuri, uh, is amazing accordion player. He was already a second accordion player, actually. The original accordion player was uh, Sasha Kazachkov. He was quite great, more folklorically sounding. But they all had an important influence in, like, kind of crystallizing gypsy punk. Like, without him, it could not be. Because that executing the rapid-fire arpeggios on the top of, you know, it's it's not something I could ever afford. <laughs> right. Right. Now, I, I wish more people would blend stuff they grew up on like that and not just uh, not just the same old punk or metal or whatever. Um, there was one band from the DDR, I think they were called Deskeptiker, who had a very 
odd seven inch ep maybe even before deserter i don't know with all these blues slide guitar in it they didn't sound like anybody else and then the wall falls and suddenly they were i believe it was them maybe even feeling b who of course spawned the singer for rammstein and whatnot um soon as the west german punk sound came in there was no more East German punk sound anymore. Whatever they did by accident that I thought was so cool and unique wasn't there anymore. And of course, VV moved to France and I have one CD of them after they moved. I don't know if they made any more or not, but already you could tell that, you know, Western European rock or whatever is starting to creep in more. Well, you have to consider, I mean, first of all, it's amazing. You're blowing my mind once again. You're as always digging deeper than deep and these are like extremely obscure uh, examples. I mean, I thought I know quite a bit about DDR rock, but I've never heard about that that band. Um, But you have to understand that technology, you know, it was always had a lot to do with why American music was so powerful. So the sound that people were thriving for um, yeah, yeah, they were thri- thriving to achieve that greatness. They, for them, moving towards that kind of more glossy sound was a right way to go. You know, as here you're trying to break away from it and kind of get out of the Apollonian side back into the Dionysian. They're like so deeply in Dionysian. They're trying to bring some elements of, uh, you know, technological finesse to it. So it wasn't a bad thing for in their eyes. Yeah, I mean, even the very early Italian hardcore and Brazilian hardcore in its own ways recorded so weirdly compared <laughs> to British or American. I was like, it had it had a charm all its own. I mean, the very first Hatos de Parau album in uh-huh. Brazil, guitar sounds like an electric razor or something. Right. And even, it was the last Electric Razor record out of Brazil before they got a grip on the technology or got into bigger studios, I don't know. And then, um, but even some bands over here, sometimes their most interesting periods are right before they have a full grip on what it is exactly they're trying to do. I mean, even as great as they were straight out of the gate, Butthole Surfers and Hooster Do, some of the most interesting stuff is before they fully had command of what fine down home to a fine point of exactly what part of their sound they wanted to pursue yeah absolutely no i can i can see that i mean bad brands i mean recording yeah. bodega right here on the avenue a you know that that is just mind-blowing it's it's uh un- unreplicable you know and it's ferocious and uh, and uh, that that's of course because it's just people are in it's cathartic it's like they're not interested in technology at that moment so that's why we become collectors of these things because they are really a once in a they're real treasures if not in a once in a lifetime but th- this is kind of why in, like this is why i really now that we have all this perspective of some time on history of you know punk and hardcore yeah. and all experimental music it's it's kind of for me it's kind of becomes the cream of the crop of it is becoming more interesting because um because the factors that brought it together are no longer exist you know people just have completely different uh, agenda for life right and uh, yeah. it's it's beyond being collectible items it's like a 
and it's like a recipe. Uh, it's like a re- it's, it's like rare recipe that you need to collect and preserve, so right. some future master can find it and you know and do something with it. I mean, it. It, as part of what did it over here, I think, was just like like in Kiev, only maybe a little bit bit uh, larger scale. Even a place like San Francisco, seventy seven, seventy eight into seventy nine, the scene was very small compared to what people think it was, and thus the peer pressure was not for every band to sound the same, but for every band, no two bands can sound the same at all, or nobody's going to be interested. Right. Especially when almost the entire audience is people from the other band, all (laughs) trying to do and find their own thing to blow the minds of their peers and impress them. Yeah, I can come up with something really cool too. And when hardcore hit, that kind of changed. But, uh, and and because the audience was younger, it was more macho, and they wanted a certain thing, they didn't want other things. I don't know. But there were still always unique things coming out, including, of course, Gogol Bordello. But then then we get to what is soon going to be the one-year anniversary of Putin's ongoing attempt to basically wipe out and occupy Ukraine. And within a day or two, I think, I mean, I mean, we were all very, just as individual people who are just very shook up by the whole thing and the scenes of what was going on, even somebody clutching his cat in a train station because that was all he had left. And, you know, this is happening to real people right now. And it's not like what Putin did in Chechnya or in Syria where we didn't see it. This is what war, you know, when war crimes, which is what war is, basically, looks like. And so I sent you a little text message at first, feeling not wanting to bug you or anything. You must have been getting from all over the place. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, right away, thanking me, saying that it was, I was one of the first few and first people who ever even asked how you were doing. Or anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, listen, it's going to take years to process all of that experience. Like every day in the morning when I wake up, you know, like I'm still trying to reconcile that with my consciousness that this is what's actually happening. And like your first things, you know, before like you, you know, wash your face, you you, you check messages from your family and friends back in Ukraine yeah. that, you know, they're yeah. uh, holding up all right because there's ongoing communi- communication. So lifestyle kind of changed uh, quite a bit at, at this whole time and there's a mantra going on all the time it's just you know all ukrainians worldwide and whoever with us are fighting that war and it's that's the frame of mind it's for a second it doesn't go away it's just yeah. however what you know i really appreciated you reaching out that time and which was once again emblematic of uh how people in in, in in a community of uh, punk rock are, you know, it was, I found it to be very inspiring, actually. Inspiring is not really a word to use because it's war, because of the tragical trigger of it all, the war. But I thought it was very, um, you know, significant that the first people to react to the whole situation, artists, the, the artists who spoke about it and were, or to reach out to me or speak on the cause were Patty Smith, guys from Sick of It All, and you. That you know, the Gogo Bordel collaborated. The, you know, the track that we created together. Actually, Monty from uh, Monty just added the guitar to it, so it's cooked now. It's gonna come out soon. Oh, so it still hasn't been released anywhere, but it's coming. It's coming, but it's because it's because it's uh, it's for a particular campaign and event for uh, right. 
Right. Yeah, that's like it has a purpose. So and and Monty was just the most perfect call as a guitar player for that. After all, you know. And yeah, um, Monty is who? from Ministry. Oh, that Monty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Monty Pittman. Yeah. 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 He was used to in prong. I didn't know he was ever in prong. I know he also plays with Madonna. And yes, that's actually how we Madonna. met. He's in Ministry instead. Yes. Uh, it's so kind of <laughs> swashbuckling that we actually met at the concert with Madonna, but he was before that he was in prong and now you're in ministry and you know clearly we're in this camp, you know. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. he's a fantastic musician and uh, his guitar is just absolutely killer on that track. But you know, that was very uh, significant that that you know Patty Smith right away was very supportive. Uh, now is everybody is supporting Ukraine. I mean, good, you know, 70, 80% population, which is great. Thank you. Amazing. But there was a time, you know, before, there was about two months of a very gray zone of people, especially who have big careers in music, just kind of observing how it's going to go and not really saying anything because, because they're, uh, they're not defending any principle, you know, like they're, their their main priority is commerce and their career. So a, pro- a prominent frontman in the metal world, who you probably know too, he's from Hungary, and he told me right after this happened that he oh it's crazy they should have just they should have just let Russia walk in and saved everybody's lives. <laughs> That is the most moronic thing I ever heard. Well, that was kind of where some people, the Biden camp seemed to be, okay, Zelensky, we found you some safe passage. We'll get you out of the country now. You ready? And to his eternal credit, a former TV comedy actor said no. Yeah. Uh, they don't know Ukrainians. They These people who say things like that, they just have not read the book yet. Once yeah. they read the book, at least first page of the book, and realize that, you know, uh, it's like saying it's... I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but it's basically the same. It's like saying, you know, why doesn't... It's like explaining to people constantly that, you know, Russia, that, 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 that like Germany is not France, <laughs> you know. It's like an equivalent... I'm exaggerating a little bit, exa- a little right, bit, but right. it's, like, it's like saying like, hey, why doesn't, you know, just Germany let France walk over them? You know, it's like, wow, like, why isn't that awesome? It's like, there's a lot of reasons why that would not be... Right. Right, of course. And uh, those people are just, they bolt in into that whole mythology, which is, uh, you know, we all know Power of the Myth, Joseph Campbell, of course, (laughs) Goebbels, they all employed it very well, Uh, uh, you know, make it as blurry and as stupefying to the majority of people, they will not take time to explore. So that those myths of course, get disseminated through the world, and some people are still operating on them, but we're undoing them. Well, on the other hand, our first or second of the long phone calls after Putin stormed in, you seemed weirdly relaxed and confident, we will win because (laughs) we have stamina. I'm thinking, well... I know you have stamina. My God, it's amazing the live shows Thank and you. things. But uh, but but um but to, to 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 then say the whole country is like that. Um, and you truly believe that, don't you? Well, it's like this. First of all, Ukrainians do have a quite a massive stamina, and uh, it's historical trait. It's probably one of the traits that one of the ma- biggest national traits. You know. Um, 
and it's been revered by many great Ukrainian poets like Taras Shevchenko and Ivan Franko and Lesa Ukrainka. You know, they all wrote about it. There's tons of quotes about perseverance and uh, underdog resistance. I mean, it's almost, uh, that that's undeniable. So if you're Ukrainian, you know that, you know, people who are not Ukrainian, they don't know that. So they will find out. Now, this is another part of this whole confusion is, as your song says, we created Putin. So <laughs> I think that of course, you know, as an artist, you make an yeah. exaggerated uh, statement, uh, but I think that you at least co-created Putin. How? By 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 um, by all these Hollywood uh, ideas of greatness of Russians and all this kind of because it sells this whole myth that yeah. they have some kind of mighty guys, you know, like in a in a Rocky Four, Ivan Drago, you know this unbeatable guy it's like they don't have guys like they have guys yeah, like this in, point. in like dagestan and ukraine that's where they have guys like. <laughs> well that's that, the my, truth. my point on my my point on we created putin was especially that there never would have been somebody a strong man who got in just like hitler did after world war one if we hadn't treated the entire former soviet union like we treated the Germans after World War One, and just pissed on everybody instead of trying to reach in and help and rebuild. It was instead of like, ha ha on you and maybe we can loot you a bit. And right. of course, it didn't help that uh, George Bush the first was in charge at first. And the whole thing was, OK, how can we plunder this? And in order to get people in Russia to accept this, Greg Palast, who has also been on Renegade Roundtable, um, we talked about who created Putin. He said, no, no, it wasn't just a terrible decision not to have a Marshall Plan to rebuild the former Soviet Union and prevent another Hitler or something from taking over, which has now happened. But also, um, there are people even back then who wanted that among our all our corporate barons and the Larry Summers type economist types who saying, no, 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 we need need to find our own Pinochet. Right. And Yeltsin is drinking too much. We need someone else. And helped build up Putin from the inside. That's the claim of Greg Pallas, among others, that we helped create Putin that way, too. Right. He was our guy. Well, of course, as an author of the song, you have wider insight into it. And thank you for, I'm always up for the enlightenment. So that broadens the thing, but instantly that's what I took out of it, is like yeah. that kind of co-creation and, 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 and the mythology of it. Now now that you introduced me more to the whole concept of that song, on that level, please don't underestimate that Russia has long history of dictatorship and totalitarianism. Yeah. In fact, that's the only history they have. They don't, yeah. uh, they never had any other history. So in that sense, Creating Putin was not necessary. It was a done deal. It was going to happen. Uh, in fact, one of the big academical hits, I think I have it on the shelf here, from uh, the 90s, uh, it was very popular amongst my friends, it was this psychoanalytical book uh, called Slave Soul of Russia, written by a British, I think he was a British scholar. Uh, the subtitle was Masochistic Origins of Russian Culture and Cult of Suffering, which was all about I, in fact, Al Jurgensen knew this book. Uh, we were recording recently uh, a collab, and uh, right. it came up, and all was completely on top of this game. And uh, so we talked about it, and I kind of thought that everybody knows this book, but it's a it's a good survey. It's, you know, it's about three, maybe four hundred pages of 
going down the, the foundation of their culture and how well it's conditioned into a totalitarianism and dictatorship. That's the only, from Ivan the Terrible to through Peter the Great to you know uh, Catherine the the, the, the so-called Great and uh, and uh, you know and Lenin and and, and 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 Stalin and now it's all like what is what else is fucking new you know so you know I, I don't know. If you didn't have to work so hard to create Putin, what was inevitable, you know, they just, they don't know any other way. Is people on our side of the border, meaning um, not Ukraine, but Western Europe, America, whatever, looking with a stereotypical lens at the average Russian person and viewing them as somebody who drinks a lot of vodka and is always in a bad mood and just... You know, it's it's a miserable country, which I think we both know isn't entirely true. But it also means I wonder how true this book really is, although you and Al both seem to put a lot of weight on it. But then I wonder, too, with all the flying propaganda back and forth about this war in Ukraine, although all I, I call it a war on Ukraine, yeah. which is, you know, it's Putin's war in Ukraine. He's making war on Ukraine, basically. You know, of course, they highlight any so-called victories of driving Putin's army or the Russian army out of this. Area. Oh, there's all these people deserting. There's all these people who don't have food or clothes. And But yet here comes more missiles. Here comes more bombs. How Are the Ukrainians really winning yet or will they win at all? At the same time, these reports, oh, actually, Putin just fell down some stairs and shit his pants and had to be cleaned up by his minions because he's got dying of pancreatic cancer and something Yeah, there was that too, yeah. But is that even true or is it propaganda from our side or even the, the Rupert Murdoch's side that's throwing this at us and we don't really know what to believe? Well, you know, there is, there is a bit of leeway to, you, you have to be your own disinformation agent. That's the only way. Right. And you've done quite well on the front. <laughs> so, well, I'm not, I'm not 100% right. And I hate being wrong when I'm a person other people listen to, but it does happen. It does it happen. It does happen. We all believe what we want to believe. At the end of the day, you just got to be very careful on what you want to believe. Of course. In the same time, you know, in the same time, it comes down to uh, what's actually having happening to, on a battlefield. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so there is a lot of, you know, there is a lot of uh, channels saying many different things just to give people yeah. a big up or catharsis or, you know, anger yeah. them more or or, um, or relax them a little bit. Uh, so it's informational chaos, but I think that... Um, you got you got to look at what's up on the battlefield, really, and, and and look at the follow basically war analysts for that's going to be the most tangible information. So if you see that on map of Ukraine that Ukrainian army is pushing them out, that's basically what is happening. Well, let's put it this way. Um, let's put it this way. Uh, the, the 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 tactics that Ukrainian army is exercising are changing the warfare history. It's not something that is actually predictable because they had to figure something completely else out because they're so outnumbered. Luckily, you know, Ukrainians are very savvy and street smart and uh, they exercised the tactics that did debunked Russian uh, attacks in, in the right. first days and continue to do so. And right. it's kind of, it makes it hard for war analysts to even analyze situation and see where the next thing is coming from. All you need right. to know is that there hasn't been any uh, success on the Russian front since the beginning of war. 
they've just, they've been just getting their ass kicked and dying in spades. So that's like undeniable factual information, you know. I think they call it guerrilla warfare, don't they? There's that. It's a it's a highly maneuverable tactical um, operations they're running Ukrainians with Ukrainian army with very small parts. So yeah. with very small rapidly locating and dislocating groups yeah. it's and and there's other things of course the drone drone uh, warfare is a completely yeah. another new dimension and that's basically became like a co- most crucial factor you know so they're doing oh, w- without this right down to the strength some of this right down to the strength and the stamina reminds me of ho chi Minh driving the french out and then even driving the americans out of the southern part of the country, well, you know, his own army in the Vietnam. The, the thing is that another thing, another factor nobody can ever underestimate is that Ukrainians are home. Their motivation is in their bone marrow. You can't right. fight that motivation, as Russian motivation doesn't exist. And first of all, they're Mamluks. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're slave soldiers. They don't even care what the cause is. They don't know what the cause is. They just think that. That's a good enough cause as they were told to do certain things. That's their psychology. And um, it's a very different psychology from um, Ukrainians, you know, who are very, who have a great history of, uh, you know, uh, Kazakhdom, which was a warrior class state, and anarchism, you know, Nestor Makhno, you know, being from a practitioner of anarchy community. You know about that, I'm sure. Actually, not at all, which means a lot of the listeners don't either. Oh, well, Nestor Makhno was a huge anarchist, theoretician, and practical guy who had created a commune, a quite well-functioning anarchist commune in uh, early years of, uh, uh, after the, the revolution. He kind of basically squatted chunk of land in Ukraine, and and they he had they had an educational program and kind of like a you know a anarcho-syndicalist commune that was kind of greatly revered by many. Then he was of course betrayed and stabbed in the back by the Red Army of Bolsheviks came and destroyed the whole thing, and he died in exile. Okay, in so it was after that revolution. Okay, yeah. after the. So, oh, that's real interesting. Wow. Yeah, he died in France. In uh, I think he, his last writings were in, in, in Strasbourg, and uh, I have all his books. And uh, so it's a it's a place of people with a very different psychology, <laughs> who are who are gonna always fight to the for 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 defining their vector. And, and their destiny. Yeah, they're not interested in anybody telling them what the fuck to do. These are just not those people. And uh, you're looking at it now. You know, that's 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 where that's where all that stamina and all that uh, wits and uh, admirable energy is coming from. It's from the history. I was almost afraid to ask, but uh, I'll do it now instead of earlier. Um, you mentioned you've been checking up on your family and your friends. Yeah. Um, have you lost anybody? You know, thank you for asking. Luckily, everybody's okay. That's good. Yeah, and they are yeah. in Kiev. Did you actually play in Kiev on your last tour? You got in and out of Ukraine in spite of Putin's army? Um, well, no, we went specifically to play in Ukraine in just in August. Oh, okay. Yeah, we made specific trip. It was organized together with our friends and... We played on military bases and yeah, and, 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 and uh, military base and and refugee hubs. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it was a very kind of a 
necessary thing to do just for a lot of reasons just kind of break that idea that ukraine is a place where is off the limits it's not off the limits i mean you know the semantics play tricks on people all the time you know every every time you open the newspaper here on the radio when russia invaded ukraine it's like russia never invaded ukraine if you look at the map the the russia is like around it's like around the border with Russia, there is there is a bit of occupied territory, which is shrinking every day. But, you know, 90% of Ukrainian territory was never invaded. So it's a bit like dawning on people. It gets into their head that Russia is everywhere in Ukraine. It's like, no, there's people in Ukraine who are continuing with their life despite warfare. You know, well, the, 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 the lesson, I guess, for me and many others is when they flash on a map on the news of Ukraine showing where the stuff's going on and the different colors for what Russia is occupying and this, that, and the other, I haven't looked as carefully as I could. I just assume it's a map of the whole country. Yeah. Now that I think about it, perhaps it is not a map of the whole country, but maybe, I don't know, the northeastern part or the northeastern third, maybe, or, you know, or where the Donbass is. And uh, that's the most problematic area. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, and to come to think of it, yeah, there are ones where I don't even see Kiev on the map, let alone Odessa or points west, because it's a it's it's not a map of the whole country. And so this this part that a lot of Ukraine isn't even invaded, that's very, very interesting. I, I did not know that, and I'm not sure how many other people did. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are basically, um, I mean, there are air raids. I mean, there was air raid when we were there, and but people pretty much, um, if they're not in a territory of extreme warfare, I mean, there's still, there's still missile strikes, but people continue with their lives. They, uh, it's... <coughs> It's hard to explain. You wouldn't, you can't call it a normal life, but people do have psychological um, tools. I mean, inborn to get adopted and kind of persevere through these things. And uh, yeah. especially in Ukraine, that that uh, has everybody who grew up there. Well, with my generation probably being the last generation, and now again it starts. Has grandparents, you know, wounded and from the war. It's like. It was an uncommon thing. Yeah. Like everybody's yeah. grandparents, probably 90, you know, 85% of people, grandparents were at war and were wounded or something happened with them that you know, some kind of PTSD. So yeah, PTSD was not acknowledged until maybe Vietnam or after Vietnam. Right. My dad was in Korea in the early 50s, sent there against his will, and he turned out to be a psychiatric medic in a real MASH hospital, which, wow. of course, was much more blood-soaked horror than the one you ever saw on TV. Oh, my God. And he talked about, told me it was about people hearing gunshots that weren't really there and flashbacks, and now they call it PTSD. And occasionally, they'd even have a North Korean soldier wander into camp. They tried to help and stuff. And one superior officer once all of a sudden flipped out and thought he was a cat and climbed up a tree and wouldn't get down. And finally, they put a bowl of milk at the base of the tree and he came down. But uh, now it's PTSD. But a lot of people from all over any place that was just wrecked and bombed and everything else in World War II, let alone the later Balkan Wars, there's PTSD untreated, unacknowledged, all over the place and obviously handled a different way and the the stories and whatever they want to say if anything is passed down from your grandparents to your parents and then down to you and kind of treated a different way wow i guess and then of course there's you know 
I guess it has been lifted now. Gino Yevjevich from uh, Culture Shock, who's going to be on Renegade Roundtable real soon. I love I Gino, man. You first, but uh, yeah, he's going to talk about really being in a war and stuff and not being able to hang out in New York the whole time and stuff. Not yet, anyway, but now he's in Seattle. But anyway. Um, what a great band. Yo, I know. Soon to be on Alternative Tentacles. The Seven Inches just arrived, and one of the albums is coming next. Yes. So watch out, everybody, for Gino Yevjevich. What a, like Eugene, what a character, too. And mountain of stories. But Billy Gould, you know, the Faith of More guy who had Cool Arrow Records. Yes, yes. Putting out Culture Shock, uh, Gino's band that we're doing in the, in the earlier days. He told me that the European Union was not letting anybody with a Bosnian passport into the rest of the EU. Because they were afraid they would come to visit and never leave. And every damn one of them had serious PTSD going on. And they didn't want to have to deal with it. In the EU, which, you know, is not exactly the most uh, empathetic approach. Gino told me in the last month or so that that is no longer the case and Bosnians can travel now. But again, you know, new frontiers of PTSD everywhere you look. But for, you know, everybody from me to people listening to this and other people, everybody knows what is the best thing or what can we as individuals and collectively over here do to help the people in Ukraine? What can we do? Well, stay stay with us as far as um, as far as understanding of what we're doing, that this is not uh, stay, stay with the idea that get to the core of idea. First of all, like it's not, it's not, it should not be a mythological area where like people are still figuring out who the good guys is. It's just like that whole like Macron rhetoric is retarded. Like, you know, that France right. is still like trying to decide like where, the, where, where is their place in this fight? Like that is absolutely, uh, I mean, of course he's probably whatever, saying what he's been told to say by somebody. But yeah, if you're a person who is, doesn't have that situation, yeah, it's important to understand where the, as they say, from where the legs are growing. And the legs are growing from the fact that Ukraine is doing something very basic and undeniable. And it's going to win, but we do and welcome and need all the support that can be provided so it can be won faster. Winning it faster is really what it's about because people, you know, the people who go fight in Ukraine, these are not uh, people who are like, you know, waste cases like they draw in Russia. Because most of Russia is basically like that all those terrible depressed territories where like level of life is non-existent, you know, they draw people from there and you know, push them into the warfare w- with zero motivation and, and um, zero uh, idea what they're doing. But their number is large. But in Ukraine, people who go to the war are people who really are there for motivated right reasons. And a lot of times these are like the 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 the, the, the most advanced people of the nation. Like people like I just read the guy who was like a, you know the star of ballet died on the front line, you know, like oh you know, just people like sort who are so far away from that walk of life, who sign up for it and go. And that's where that the yeah. filmmakers, directors, writers, uh Poets, you know, just like I mean, everybody's life is 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 precious. But I'm talking about the faster it can stop. Right. That's what we're really talking about. But but also also when you talk about 
winning. I mean, what do you define even as winning now? There's all these cities just bombed out and leveled, bridges destroyed, millions of homeless refugees. You get the place back. And this goes for Putin, too, if he actually did seize part of it. Once you've got all this destroyed stuff, what have you got? What have you actually won? He is not, the, I mean, that is completely irrational. There is no logic behind, behind that whole situation. It's deeply irrational behavior of the whole uh, country. But let them live with that. The, the, the purpose of Ukraine is get everybody off the territory and reestablish sovereignty. Let's call it for that day a win. Because, okay. the, yes, we'll, that will be an amazing lesson to that maniacal ill neighbor and a message for a hundred years to come to never fuck this way. And um, that will be that will be a victory because the amount of people and businesses that will want to go to Ukraine to rebuild, the line is around the block already. Right. That will not we be can, a problem. We can only hope. We can only hope. That will not In be a problem. In the meantime, is, should we be trying to gather up things like ski jackets and sleeping yes. bags? Yes. Super warm after ski boots to help people who are in danger of freezing to death over the winter. Absolutely, and, actually, I was going to who, say this. Who's that, collecting them? Who's going to get them there? Well, that, do you know yet? That's what. I, that's kind of what I was getting at. Is uh, yeah, you know, I was trying to get to this that humanitarian help is kind of where it gets thrown around a lot. Almost people get desensitized to it, like whatever that means. But that means exactly that. It's just, it's just the 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 winter is here and winter is there and warfare and just being my friends civilians with you know living in kiev but you know he the electricity and heat cuts out people have like two three children you know you know people are like you know, burning wood in an apartment you know with like self-made chimney out of the window like it's so we you know we collect money buying generators sending stuff like that over so Anything really, clothes, generators, medical supplies, right. all of that is, is gold right now. But where where can it be sent? Well, there are organizations that are very reliable, like Razom for Ukraine, which is friends of mine, actually. And uh, Razom, R-O-Z-O-M dot four dot Ukraine. You know, that's a very reliable. Oh, yeah, you said R R A Z is in Z-O-M yeah. dot F-O-R dot Ukraine? Yeah, Razum, yeah. Dot, but is, is there a dot com or a dot org after that? Uh, I think it's dot org. I'm not right. sure, but Razum for Ukraine is the organization. I mean, they're, they're, they're yeah. as accessible as Instagram. Yeah, and, send us a little link and we'll get it around. Yes, R-A-Z-O-M dot. Yeah. So send us a link and we'll get it around. They've been a very room, reliable. Tick, tick, clock is about to strike 12 when we turn into pumpkins. Yes. Well, which I don't think... easily destroyed by Russian ordinance. So really good to talk to you and uh, hope we talk again soon. Yeah, I don't think we ever had a conversation less than two hours with you. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. We're hitting on two hours, but uh, oh, well, then down the line, another phone call. We shall see. And take care and best wishes to your family and your colleagues over here. And Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you for having me. everybody. Away I go. Much respect for all you do. Hold up. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.